You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Spirit, we ask that you would baptize us again in your word so that we might see Jesus and only Jesus. Amen. Well, happy daylight savings, the only day that singles out parents of small children for special punishment while the rest of us smile and sleep, all right? So uh, just this past Wednesday, Abby and I experienced one of those great parenting oops moments. We've got three boys and a little girl, ages spanning from 13 down to 7. And we never do this. We're kind of a TV off in the middle of the week kind of family. But we just sort of broke down and broke all the rules and collectively said, let's watch a movie. So we heard about this inspirational football movie. And since we have three boys and since we are in Alabama, we thought this will be perfect. Rated PG, that'll work. We read the first line of the description that said something like, inspirational football movie. And so we all plopped on the couch, cozied up, and turned it on. We were going to have a nice evening with our dear little innocent children watching a sweet movie. Well, to cut to the chase, it was a decent inspirational movie, but its punchline was that the main character tragically dies. I mean, tragically dies. And did I mention that we only read the first line of the description? Several times throughout the movie, we'd hear our kids say little things like, this is really sad, Mom, and is he really dead? Abby and I would turn to each other and gave each other that look that said, what are we doing? We're totally wrecking our kids right now. Needless to say, all of us were crying at the very end of it. And then shortly after I had spent a few moments Googling the phrases family therapy in Birmingham and (laughs) alternate employment for failed pastors with wrecked families, (laughs) Abby and I both commented on actually what a strangely providential and powerful moment it was. We actually couldn't have planned it better. The movie cut us all to the heart and in God's grace presented the reality of suffering and death to my kids in a strangely Christian kind of way. The movie didn't give death short shrift, but it placed it, as the Bible does, in the context of hope. And a parenting blunder turned into a surprisingly redemptive shared moment. They were the right kind of tears that we shared. They were Christian tears. Christian tears are the tears of a struggler desperately clinging to hope. Why is that? If you would, please hang on to that thought and that question as I only slightly shift gears and connect a theme of our traditions from baptisms at the 9 o'clock on this All Saints Sunday when I say that all of life is baptism. We parents who are struggling to raise our kids, why is it so hard? Because all of life is baptism. Those of us students who are overwhelmed with the pressures of homework and activities, and what our parents make us feel. Why does it feel like it's all killing us? Because all of life is baptism. Those with chronic illness and persistent, unbeatable medical issues. Why do we experience this? Because all of life is baptism. Those of us who find ourselves unable to retreat from something or someone that is destroying us. Why can't we go the other direction? Because all of life is baptism. 
So what do I mean by this? Think with me for just a moment about the nature of baptism. Now, our prayer book, graciously and correctly and biblically, I think, allows us to engage in what are called different modes of baptism. It allows us to sprinkle and pour like we did today, which is a wonderful symbol of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But along with those images are biblical images of immersion, like we've done at other times, getting submerged under the water. And I want to stop right there and ask a question. Under normal circumstances, when a human being is held underwater, what ultimately happens to them? Well, they die. Many of you know I grew up in Hawaii, and I was no stranger to the water. In fact, in my teen years, I became a, a big surfer. I loved surfing. It's what I love to do. But I'll tell you that the most fearful moments I've had in my life have been when I've fallen off the board into the middle of a crashing wave. And the reason it's so scary is because all of a sudden the power of the wave churns the waters in such a way that you don't know which way is up. You can't save yourself in that moment. You, you can't feel gravity beneath you. You can't feel water pressure or which way. And you just have to let it do its work and churn and churn and churn. Friends, this is a picture of the strange work of God in our lives that he pushes us into the churning water and holds us there. Why? Because if there's going to be any resurrection, there must first be death. Our passage from Joshua today is an epic scene of what some might call Israel's baptismal life. And we have to track with the history to really get it. You see, this wasn't the first time that Israel crossed a big body of water. In fact, it was in their institutional memory not long ago that the previous generation had to cross through with Moses, away from Egypt, through this Red Sea. You see, this is the other side of two water crossings. And the early church and others, and maybe even Jesus in the New Testament, depict this as a kind of going into the waters of baptism in the Red Sea and coming out of the waters of baptism into the Promised Land. But the Bible illustrates that what happens between the going down and the coming up is the book of Numbers. If you read the book of Numbers, it begins with a genealogy. And then it, begins, and then it moves through a narrative of God's law. And then it ends with a completely different genealogy. Why is that? Because when Israel is in the baptismal waters, when they're under God's law, there's nothing to do but to die. And so a new generation must enter the promised land with Joshua. So why did God hold Israel under the water? Why could it only be that a new generation could enter the promised land? Because if there's going to be any resurrection, there must first be death. Indeed, the strange work of God. And so here we are, standing with Joshua in the middle of the Jordan River, learning what it means to be Christians who must experience a fearful funeral before our future feast. Our passage today shows us three simple things. Number one, if you are to reach the promised land and find rest, God must wage war with your idols. Number two, your promised land for now is full of harlots. But thankfully, number three, Jesus came from and for harlots. So number one, if you're to reach the promised land and find rest, God must wage war with your idols. 
it's not readily apparent to our minds, but it would have been very much on the forefront of ancient Near Eastern mindsets that as God pushed back the Red Sea, he was making a claim about his divinity and power. You see, in ancient times, as is probably still to the case today as we look at current events, water was a fearful thing. Seas, oceans, rivers, they all had to, the power to wipe out people. And so in ancient Near Eastern polytheism, the sea god, the water god, was a really strong god. And so when God is separating the waters and allowing Israel to go through, he is claiming to Israel, I am more strong than those gods. And all this tells us that God is in the business of hunting down, of chopping down, of eradicating, of obliterating our idols. The things that your heart and my heart so desperately cling to that aren't God, God is in the business of peeling back our calcified fingers from around our precious. And this is, as I said before, the mysterious work of God because though this work means our freedom, it feels like a whole lot of pain. It's not a pleasant work when God is stripping us back and placing us helplessly in front of a huge and deadly wall of water. Stand still and I will deliver you in the middle of the Jordan, he says. Uh, no thanks, God. I'd rather sit this one out. Maybe just pull up a beach chair on the Jordan shore. And yet, it is a work that God must do. He must prove his power over our idols. And he must be gracious enough to remove those idols from our lives. The things that we love more than him. The things that keep us from him. The mysterious work of God. And you know what's even more mysterious that brings us to point two? On the other side of that strange work when God is bringing us out, your promised land for now is loaded with harlots. You see, the narrative here is connecting something that we're bound to miss if we only read today's verses. Because back in chapter two, while Israel is still on one side of the Jordan, Joshua sends out a reconnaissance mission to go check Jericho out, a city on the west side where they're gonna cross over, a, a city that they're supposed to conquer. And they meet someone who's going to be their aid in redeeming them once they pass through the waters of baptism into the promised land. This character is a woman named Rahab who the text makes sure to point out her occupation, the godly work of a prostitute, of a harlot, right? And then, so we get this image in mind that as Israel goes over, they're going to encounter relief and redemption through the use and help of a harlot. That sounds strange if you're headed into the promised land. But it's even more strange because at the beginning of chapter 3, in our little narrative here, it says that Israel on the east side of the Jordan was camped at a place called Shittim. Now, that already sounds bad in English, right? But in Hebrew... This city was a place where Israel remembers back in Numbers 25, where the text says, Israel in this place played the harlot with the citizens of Moab. You see, Israel in crossing the Jordan thinks that they're going to escape the harlotry of their former selves and emerge in the resurrection of the promised land. But the narrative is always, already giving way that there are harlots on the other side. Likewise, you and I have entered into the inbreaking of God's promised land. Jesus declared in his ministry, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Jesus on the scene 2,000 years ago. He inaugurated that kingdom. And I don't know about you, but if I'm honest about my life, I find this kingdom life that we Christians are living strangely unsatisfying. I mean, if the kingdom of heaven is at hand, would someone please notify all the sin and darkness and brokenness and pain and chaos and war that it's time to go to hell? But we learn from this passage and from Jesus' teaching that our promised land is loaded with harlots. The kingdom of God is here. It has indeed established headquarters in Harlotville, but the Harlotville government is still running a massive underground operation. We learn as Christians to expect this tension. The kingdom of God is here, and yes, it will succeed, but most of the time, I have to strain to see it. I have to strain to see it because I must walk not by sight, but by faith. That what God says is indeed true, even when my sight appears to contradict his promises. And so we slog on, having crossed over into the kingdom, Shittim behind us, and Rahab before us. But thankfully and thirdly, Jesus came from and for the harlots. It's hard to overestimate just how loaded with Jesus this passage in Joshua really is. Everything about it screams his name. And I actually mean that literally because Joshua's name is Jesus' name. Joshua's name comes from the same Hebrew root as Jesus, Yeshua. So there's that. But look with me again at some of these verses and listen to the progression of events. We read in verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And then we move on into verses 8 through 10. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And here is how you shall know that the living God is among you. He will drive out your enemies. Okay, so Joshua is to be exalted. But he must first pass through the waters of the Jordan. And then he must enter into battle after battle with his enemies. Now here's where it gets a little mind-blowing. If we were to turn in our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, the Gospel of our other lectionary reading today, we would see how the Gospel writer is connecting Jesus to the story of Israel, especially in Joshua. We would see in chapter 1, Matthew relay a genealogy of Jesus, and he includes a name in that genealogy. What name is that? It's the name of a harlot named Rahab, the ancestor of Christ himself. Kind of crazy that a harlot is in his line. But at the same time, not soon after that genealogy and after Jesus is born, something powerful happens. Jesus enters into the Jordan to be baptized by John. And he says he does this to fulfill all righteousness. And then after he exits the Jordan, what happens next? The Spirit leads him into the wilderness to do battle with our enemy, Satan. Do you see it? Jesus, the true and perfect Joshua that Joshua could never be, the true and perfect Israel that Israel could never be, and punchline, the true and perfect you that you could never be. 
Matthew helps us to see Jesus from a harlot get plunged into the Jordan and come out as a savior of the very ones who played the harlot. And brothers and sisters, this is the great irony of Jesus' victory, the great power. His pursuit of defeating our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, would ultimately take him not all the way up to a throne and to a golden crown, but all the way down to a cross and to a crown of thorns, where he wins by losing, where he defeats by being defeated. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, hanging on a cross. So what does this mean for you and for me, slogging it out here in Harlotville? It means that we can run to him at the beginning of every hard day and cry out to him, Oh God, vanquish my heart, my idols, my enemies again today because I don't have the strength. And God's answer will be, stand still in the Jordan and watch what I will do. It means that we don't have to go about our sin-mixed lives as ones defeated. The same spirit that descended upon Jesus in his baptism and walked with him in the wilderness, descended to live in you, to do war with your flesh, and to push back the work of the devil. The spirit says, stand still in the Jordan and watch what I will do. And this means that all the global cosmic evil out there in the world doesn't get the last word. Injustice and war and sexual perversion, greed, racism, and exploitation of the helpless. All the global and systemic harlotry of Mother Earth will give way to Jesus who said with definitive certainty, the kingdom of God is at hand. Sealing that the promise, sealing that very promise by an oath signed in his blood. Christian, this day, behold Jesus again and know that the living God is among you and without fail, he will be your salvation. Behold, the waters, they're pushed back in a heap and there he stands with us, ahead of us, the ark of our deliverance. The promised land is in sight because the promised land is just that it's a land where God's promises are made good and what is God's promise in his word today God's promise is this you may feel like you're drowning in fact you may be drowning but in Christ there is resurrection on the other side stand still and believe upon Christ who has gone ahead, who is with you. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.